TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Hello, everyone. This is After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm me here. And I'm Sarah. Welcome back, Sarah. Great to see you, Sarah. Thank you guys so much for having me. You are literally just back in country, right? Yes, I've just come back from what has become a regular hiking trip in the UK, in the English Lake District. I actually remember a long time ago, we talked about your fascination with the Lake District. And you've been doing this for many years now, no? I've been doing this trip for many years with an interruption for COVID and then... um, (laughs) Yes. Maternity leave. I love this area of the UK. It's beautiful. It's mountainous. And slightly obsessive people like me like to go around (laughs) collecting all of the mountain peaks in this area. So I have a list that I've been working my way through and checking it off as I hike each mountain. So how close are you? I'm quite close. So there's 214 of these mountains called Wainwrights, and I've now done 189. So I'm, I'm closing in. Ooh, okay. That's great. And we brought topics, of course. We did. What did you bring, Sarah? I'm really curious for your thoughts on the Hollywood writer's strike. There are some really interesting Hollywood-specific issues, and I know you guys have talked a lot about streaming on the show, and so I'm curious for some of those thoughts. That sounds great. Super interesting. And Felix, what'd you bring? We recently got data how people spend their time at work, how much time they spend, and what they do when they're at work. And I'm curious what you make of the latest data and how you read them. Fantastic. Let's do it. So, Sarah, the writer's strike, what's on your mind? Some of the complaints of writers in Hollywood that have led them to strike are things like low pay. They want some regulation around AI. They want some guidelines on this very Hollywood-specific thing called mini rooms. Mm. There's a lot that's going on here that I think reflects broader concerns about the labor market, broader challenges that managers face in managing this kind of talent. And implicit in all of this is a recognition that talent's very important. Without writers, what are we going to put on TV? (laughs) Terrible reality shows. (laughs) Endless reruns. Yes. So I'd love to have your thoughts about it. I'd love to know what you find especially interesting and striking about the strike. I have to confess there is a part of the negotiations that I'm very comfortable with. And then there's a part that always make me a little uneasy. 
how do we share the benefits? How do we measure the size of audience? How do we even measure financial success? I think it makes so much sense that you would try to negotiate and maybe if negotiations break down, every now and then you will see a strike. The part that is much more problematic for me is when we try to figure out how exactly we're going to work, in particular in areas where it's not so clear what the role of technology is going to be. Take, for instance, minimum staffing levels of writer rooms. One of the demands is that it's never less than six people. And then as episodes get added, I think it's one more person per two episodes up to 12 people. That strikes me as not very smart. Mm. And so it's a mix of things that I think, yes, that's exactly right. You should negotiate really hard. And then it's also a way of fixing the production process itself, which I almost always think is a mistake. I think that's so fascinating, Felix. I share your basic distinction, which is in some sense, efforts to fix working conditions or fix production processes is often problematic. And in this case, it feels like a backdoor to addressing the economics, which is effectively by having minimum levels of people we're going to guarantee some income for the broader profession. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing to me about this is those economics have changed in part because of the nature of streaming. They tend to have these shorter seasons. It used to be network television, you had a 20-episode season. Yeah. And in yeah. streaming, you don't. You have eight or 10. And then the really interesting difference is on residuals. Writers used to make a really fantastic living on residuals and streaming has effectively killed the residual because they don't share really any data on how many people watch something. Yep. So it's very difficult to have a residuals contract. In a way, this to me feels like a real reckoning for the streaming revolution, which when times were fat and happy, <laughs> there's a lot of money sloshing around. And then writers are like, this is great because Netflix is like writing the checks, right? <laughs> and then what I don't think anybody really came to his terms with was, wow, actually the economic arrangement changed. Mm -hmm. We're not getting residuals and we're not getting the same actual number of jobs. So that feels like, wow, they kind of gave away a lot during that process and now they're trying to get it back. And I think that's super interesting. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the number of episodes because that's something I had noticed as a viewer but not concretely thought about how it would affect people's compensation, mm -hmm. especially these high concept dramas. They can actually be years in production. They can take a long time to ever come to the screen. And then they do, and it's like an eight-episode season. I could see why the writers feel like they're being asked to do more and then getting paid less, which I think is like a very common complaint in a number of industries right now. I think the broader lesson of all this is you have creative folks who have been treated as partners in the production process. Mm -hmm. both in terms of the back end of residuals and in terms of the way the entire project evolves over time. And they're basically getting treated more and more like piece rate workers yeah. or gig yeah. workers. Yeah. So the underlying theme seems to be, I used to be a partner and now I'm just a costly input to your production process. And they don't like that. Mm. I think what they're trying to say is either that's a way of assuring my economics or they're trying to say, Felix, you don't know how important I am to the creative process. Mm -hmm. That's the high-minded version of that argument. But I think the larger issue is just this sense of, I'm not a partner in this production process anymore, and I'm a piece rate worker, and I don't like that. And by the way, my absolute level of compensation is also considerably lower than it used to be. 
I think that's exactly right. And that is something I think with a strong parallel to hiring practices and other fields where workers might be expected to do some sample work. Hey, here's what I can do. And where companies can actually take that work that the candidate has done for free Mm -hmm. and then just use it and then not hire you. And I think the same is true to some degree with the writers where they might essentially do that work for a lower rate and with fewer protections and with less support. And then the studio can say, okay, thank you for that. We're going to take that and we're going to run with it. Oh, but we're not going to hire you. Mm. This sort of auditioning for a job where you're sort of working at a cut rate or even for free is something that a lot of knowledge workers have really soured on. So one of the ways in which this is an issue across many companies, not only in Hollywood, is that it's surprising to see how many companies don't have a clear sense whether their recruiting processes are working the way you would hope they work. I think the data says about a quarter of companies have systematic processes in place. I would have thought that's basically every company has the kind of data. And it turns out that's not really true. And distinguishing between your story, me here, where it's really in the best interest of producing amazing TV, we have the practices that are in place, or distinguishing that from my story that maybe we've gotten used to doing things in a particular way and there might be not a special reason why that's the right way to do it. I think we can only know the answer if A, you run the experiment and B, you know whether the way you generally hire writers and then everyone else in the economy is really working. It also strikes me just how much hiring companies have to do and how many new jobs these writers have to search for. We are not talking about the old studio system where, say, I work for TV company X, and I'm a writer, and I'm assigned to work on whatever shows they have in development, and I get a stable salary with benefits. That's not how it works. I sort of throw my hat in the ring for different shows. Some get picked up, some don't. And every few months, especially now that each series has fewer episodes, I'm like in the market looking for a new job. This is also how a lot of other knowledge workers find themselves moving up the ladder these days. No longer do you stay with one company and then slowly grow your career over decades. Now, if you want to get a salary bump, you pretty much have to change organizations to get a significant raise. And what has happened over time is that while maybe 50 years ago, about 5 or 10% of an organization's employees were hired from outside the company, now it's 80%. Hmm. So in that way, I think all of us who are knowledge workers are much more like these gig writers and gig workers than we used to be. That makes me have a lot of empathy, actually, for writers who are sort of like, yeah, I did my six episodes for Netflix. Now I need another job to get me through the rest of the year. And like, how am I going to find that? Mm. These analogies to the broader workforce are really interesting. To me, they raise these two paradoxes. So one paradox is, I always feel like this is the paradox of HR in companies, which is everybody talks about how important it is, how we win on talent, and then they basically under-resource it remarkably. And to your point, Felix, they don't do it as systematically as you think they might want to. And they often outsource it to a remarkable degree. And then everybody complains about the outcome. Mm-hmm. This is like That's the first paradox. The second paradox is people are quitting more, people are detaching more, people are not as connected to one organization. But that's actually the source of a lot of the wage gains. It's quitting that leads to the wage gains that we want to see people have. We can hearken back to an age where people stayed with companies over long periods. But I'm not sure that 
is going to lead to better wages and better outcomes. <laughs> there is this tension between people who want these longer affiliations where we're not churning in the labor market as much as we see firing and hiring and moving on and so on and so forth. But that churn is at least recently been working out really well for a lot of workers. So that feels like the other paradox of this piece of the puzzle. Hiring insiders versus hiring outsiders. To the extent that it's an information problem, it's just really hard to figure out how people will work out. And we can run these tests, but maybe the tests are not all that informative. Yeah. You would think all of this would point us towards promoting more from the inside, which is exactly not what we do. And that's the flip side of the workers having to go from one place to another in order to get the high bump. In part, that also reflects companies' tendencies to hire outsiders as opposed to promote from within. I forget the exact fraction now, but it's an astonishing fraction of companies where jobs, when they first get posted, they either get posted at the same time as you see them if you're not in the company, or sometimes they even get posted publicly before you have any chance as an insider to apply for these kinds of companies. And if it's really true that the information problem sits at the heart of this, we are just not so sure who the best person is, and then we're just not so sure about the work arrangements that are most productive, you would think both of these arguments will point us towards hire more from the inside, promote within. That's really the way you solve some of these information issues. Mm. It's too rational, Felix. <laughs> <laughs> I think the paradox is we want world-class talent. We want to have the best people. And if we do a lot of promotion from within, we're relying on initial entry of candidates to be really good. And if that screening process is not great and is not very good at discerning talent, mm -hmm. then the preference for internal promotion is problematic. And so if you think instead, I don't screen that well upon entry, I really just want to access talent pools broadly, then you're going to end up in the world you're in, which seems okay, except again, what ends up happening is you outsource it. That was actually the part of this that I didn't fully appreciate, Sarah, is just how much firms have come to outsource the recruitment function. <laughs> and that is fascinating to me because it goes against this whole logic that we care about our talent and our talent is our most important thing. And then we rely on others to do it for us. Mm -hmm. And that inevitably leads it to be more transactional, weakens ties between workers and employers, and leads to the churn that we see. And then everybody gets upset about it. But they initiated it exactly yeah, for reasons right. that were well thought out. Yeah. They've outsourced it to recruiting firms. And then at the same time, they've also laden down the hiring process with endless rounds of interviews and so many different screening tests. And then at the end, they have no idea whether all of that work was worth it. It's gone mad. I like your point, Mihir, about... Maybe if we want the very best talent, it cannot always be found inside the organization. But I think it's also just true that if you are not fabulous at hiring, you will be lucky sometimes and you will be not so lucky other times. Absolutely. Since you yeah. have a good track record and the corporate hierarchy is what it is, it's fewer and fewer people that get to climb the ladder. If only you promoted the very best people you have today, that's probably a selection that is quite competitive with your semi-random shots at hiring outsiders that sometimes work out and sometimes don't work out. Mm -hmm. One of the other paradoxes here is that people 
learn the most within organizations. So when you change organizations, you become in some ways less valuable, even though you're getting paid more money. Mm. On the one hand, if you did hire good people and you always promoted from within, you would have a lot of knowledge about those candidates and they would know a lot about the organization do a very good job. But they would almost certainly all be underpaid Mm -hmm. based on the current way that we allocate raises to people. Mm. The other thing I just think is interesting to come back to the writer's strike is the way that there is this tension in work between work that is supposedly interesting and prestigious and creative and work that pays well. The CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, David Zaslav, had a comment that love of the work would bring people back to the negotiating table. And I think it was maybe taken a little bit out of context, but you can sort of see why this idea that like, oh, you just love the work, so we don't have to pay you that much. (laughs) And that is something that I think has really taken over a lot of conversations about interesting knowledge jobs, that this idea that you have passion for the work, you're committed to it, and that sort of pushes you forward in your career, even if the pay maybe isn't that great. Although on that one, Sarah, I'm a little more sympathetic in the following sense, which is it does seem clear that all jobs have pecuniary and non-pecuniary benefits. Mm -hmm. And in some jobs, those non-pecuniary benefits are large. Now, I assume what he's getting at is I get to see my name on the credits of succession if I'm a writer and all my buddies text me and they're like, oh my God, that scene you wrote with Shiv was amazing, right? Or you get to hang out with a bunch of actors and actresses. These are all benefits. And this kind of goes back to our unpaid labor conversation, but there are a lot of those unpaid benefits of working in certain jobs. And that I think is something that's worth acknowledging. And creative work Mm -hmm. has always had that component to it. That is true. I think I'm also trying to get at something slightly different from those non-pecuniary benefits that you listed, which is that this idea that if you are intrinsically very motivated to do the job, if it's meaningful, if it's fun, that you should somehow get paid less money. But maybe you're the exact kind of person who should make the most money. That's a writer speaking feeling. Yes, it is. I know. Guilty as charged. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit Slack.com to get started. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning, It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. Okay, Felix, tell us what you're thinking about time management. 
I don't know if you saw the same stats. They appear with some regularity, and it's always sort of a similar story. This time it was, if you take together the time that employees spend in meetings and you take the time that they spend writing emails, that together is now two days out of your work week. And what I find interesting about the statistics is not only that it gets to be an ever longer duration when you take meetings and email together, but also the panic that seems to go along with it. Somehow it's this big news and almost always the interpretation is, oh my God, what is happening? Work gets worse and people are less and less productive. Right. And I'm curious to know, is this your intuition when you see the stats? What's your sense? What's interesting to me about these statistics is that they come from Microsoft. And every year, Microsoft does release this data on like how we're actually using our computers at work. Right. And I think the reason that people resonate with these numbers is that they really do reflect how we actually work, not how we wish we worked or how we feel like we work, but mm, the data mm. of how we spend our time. Yeah. I think the other piece of this that's fascinating to me is there seems to be this implicit division between real work and this other work. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. the notion is that there's real work, which in these surveys is typically things like PowerPoints and spreadsheets. Real work, and then yeah. there's this other stuff, which is not work, but it's just this other stuff I have to do, which is communication and meetings. And then people are very unhappy, Felix, because they're like, look at all this communication and meetings I do. That's not real work. And then I still have to do the real work. Mm -hmm. And that always strikes me as a weird bifurcation of the world, which is, I think it's a misconception of what the real work is, which is the idea that the real work is this creation of a PowerPoint or a spreadsheet, some individually determined thing, as opposed to the communication in the meetings, which is not real work, but is just facilitative of the real work. <laughs> that seems wrong yeah. because the real work is all of that. And all those communications and meetings actually end up helping with the quote-unquote real work. <laughs> mm -hmm. I could not agree with you more wholeheartedly. And in fact, I think it's really vital to recognize that email and meetings are real work because otherwise we sort of give ourselves license to be bad at them, to send emails that are not clear, to be in meetings that are way too big with no agenda. I think those things are obviously work. And if we take them seriously as important tasks, then we actually give ourselves permission to get good at them. Yeah, that sounds exactly right. And also recognizing that what you're doing when you're in meetings and what you're doing when you write to others, that kind of alignment, that kind of coordination, that is a really important part of people's jobs. And if you <laughs> really don't like that part of your job, Maybe you shouldn't have the managerial responsibility that you have. Mm. You can look at the very top. Our colleagues, Noria and Porter, have done this fascinating survey where they looked at tens of thousands of hours of CEO time and tried to figure out, looking at people's calendars, a little bit like Microsoft does, trying to figure out how do they spend the time? What do they do? And then not surprisingly, when you think about the role of a CEO, where most of it is about alignment, where most of the work is about coordination, they work really long hours. It's about 62 hours or so a week. So these are intensive jobs. And then sure enough, 60% of all that time they spend in meetings and about 25% of that time they spend doing email communication. So this is exactly what I would expect as you go up in the corporate hierarchy. Those functions become more important. 
And if anything, I would be really worried if you spent a lot of time doing quote unquote real work alone in your office. That would be a misconception of why we hired you in the first place. Yeah, I think the fascinating thing to me about what you just said, Felix, is there is this arc over the course of someone's life. Mm -hmm. You'll see this with finance in the following way, which is you'll have young people who will like finance because they like the analysis of understanding a company or they like the deal. Mm -hmm. And then like five or 10 years later, they're like, I don't get to do that anymore. And I'm basically managing people. I just want to do the thing I do, which is finance, which is picking stocks or buying a company or analyzing something. And the reality is that is the arc. Yeah. The arc is that over time in this kind of organization that, as you pointed out earlier, Felix, is kind of narrowing, your tasks become different. And the thing you began doing is not the thing that you end up doing. <laughs> yeah. And you have to be okay with that. And it's much more likely to involve exactly the things you're describing, Felix. Mm. That, I think, in the end, is the question I'm curious about. All of this makes a lot of sense to us, that your careers change, that coordination becomes more important. So why the dissatisfaction? In a sense, that's the heart of the puzzle. So I'd expect people to look at the data and say, yeah, that's exactly right. A big part of my responsibility is coordination. And as a result, I spend it in meetings and doing email. Where does the dissatisfaction come from? I think it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And I don't know which part comes first, but we think of meetings and email as not our real job. And that kind of gives us permission to be bad at them. It gives people permission to have flabby meetings where there's too many people, where there's no agenda, where the boss comes in and just starts talking about how their weekend went. And then you leave without deciding anything because you don't take it seriously as like part of your job to be good at this meeting. And so as a result, we think, well, that was a waste of time. Mm. Once you accept that email is a core part of your job and that you need to be good at it, that means things like responding quickly, responding clearly, and by the way, being nice in your emails and not just sending these sort of quick, brusque responses. And it also gives you permission to ignore a bunch of emails that have nothing to do with you and just delete them. And so I think that if we take seriously that these tasks really matter, then we give ourselves a way to break out of the doom loop and spiral up to a place where they have more value. (laughs) That's very interesting. And my second thought about this and where the despair and dissatisfaction comes from is that because we don't see this as real work, when managers are assigning tasks, they're assigning tasks as if you have 40 hours to spend on them instead of 20 hours because the other 20 you're in meetings or doing email. And so we end up with too much heads down work to do in the time allotted to us. I have three unconnected thoughts. The first is, <laughs> just to give a shout out, this is why Francis and Anne's podcast, Fixable, is so interesting because they really take this stuff very seriously yeah. and they really try to fix things. I've really been drawn to it because they actually tackle these issues exactly. The second thought is that old quote, hell is other people. Mm. I think people come to terms with the fact that it's really difficult to work with other people and manage other people. And that is really hard for some people. And then the third is, I think the real hard question, Felix, that you're asking is, yeah, but why the disappointment? Why aren't your eyes open to what this is? I think one is the shifting nature of responsibilities. That could be one explanation. And then the second explanation is maybe people just expect too much. Mm -hmm, Their expectations mm -hmm. are out of whack with what the job can deliver to them. In the study that our colleagues did on the CEOs, I saw two practices that are not a full explanation of the dissatisfaction, but 
maybe say something about how things go wrong, how you're seduced to adopt a mix of work that in retrospect, you're a little less than perfectly happy. Right. And so a first practice that many of these CEOs have is that they use a longer term agenda that they have a set of things they want to accomplish, say, in the next quarter or in the next month or so. And those points on the agenda become immutable. They have priority. You will make time to pursue your agenda. And by the end of the week or end of the month or end of the quarter, you will have completed these projects. And basically, if push comes to shove, everything else goes, but my agenda stays. And I thought that's sort of a smart and effective way to think about time allocation. If you already know, to your earlier point, Sarah, there's going to be a million pressures and you're going to be pulled back and forth and sideways that you have a core task that you want to see accomplished. And if that's the part that is fixed, I think you might end with an allocation of time that you're happier with. I think that the way that you could use that if you're not a CEO, but to sort of more of a peon, is you can also sort of use that to have a conversation with your boss. Mm -hmm. These are the tasks I have to do. This is the amount of time that I have. So I've achieved 80% of what you asked, and hopefully that's good enough. And if it's not, you know, I'll try to get to the next 20% next week. Yes. It can translate into many types of jobs that you have a particular part of the agenda that always will have priority. And then the second trick, which I found very interesting, is when you schedule alone time, the question is not so much how much can you schedule? Is it four hours? Is it five hours? Is it two hours a week? But one of the downfalls is if you have very short durations of alone time. Because if I give you only half an hour, what are you going to do in half an hour? In half an hour, you'll do email. If I only give you 15 minutes, what are you going to do in 15 minutes? In 15 minutes, you're going to do email. If I give you two hours, you think, oh my God, two hours for email, that feels way too long. And you're more likely to do something that is closer to your agenda that you want to accomplish. Hmm. So both of these things struck me as interesting work practices that perhaps have the potential to make you happier with the mix of work that you did when you look back. I think both these ideas are great because they really speak to, I think, what is the underlying problem. So when you both are clear about that explicit central goal you're working towards and adhere to it as much as possible, and when you take time for yourself away from the fray, they basically solve the problem of the modern worker, which is just constantly being buffeted by incessant communication. Mm -hmm. Part of why mm -hmm. I think people aren't happy is it's just coming at you mm -hmm. on the Slack channel. It's coming at you on the messages. It's coming at you. And you're just like a, a speck of sand in a windstorm and you don't know where you're going. But both those practices, Felix, I think, try to restore some sanity. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think they sound so promising. I think the other thing that's highlighted here really is a need for more slack in the workday. And I don't mean the digital communication tool. I mean time that's not allocated to anything that you could use to deal with an emergency, to deal with a corporate training module you've been assigned or something that feels not priority but has to get done on a certain time frame. So many workers today have zero slack in their workday. And we know from last year's Microsoft report, they go online late at night to catch up on their email after the workday because they were so busy that they couldn't keep up with it. I think it also has to do with how we see things like listening versus talking or initiating versus responding. Mm -hmm. If you are the one presenting at a meeting, I'm pretty confident that you think of that as real work. You are 
presenting at the meeting. You're running the meeting. Right. You are talking. You are doing something. Right, right. And I think that we need to start seeing active listening and paying attention in those moments as also of equal value. Because if mm-hmm. someone's talking and no one's listening, no value has been exchanged. <laughs> and I the think point? the same yes. with email. You know, you send off a long email. You think, oh, I've achieved something. But the person receiving it then did they experience that as a waste of time? So I think that we have to maybe bring into a little bit more balance the way we assign value to these different tasks. Yeah. This just has prompted an existential thought, which is, is anyone listening? <laughs> we, we don't know. <laughs> we have no idea. This last point, Sarah, reminded me of one of my many ideas that never got any traction in the real world. But I always thought it would be fantastic to have a tax on copying people on email. Say, (laughs) you get 100 points per week. And then when you run out, you run out. (laughs) And maybe to make the point a little more general, in part, these surveys give me an impression that time allocation is something that many people experience as it's something that happens to you. Right. Mm -hmm. You're passive in that process. And it's many other outside forces, as opposed to thinking... This is something I actively manage. I actively manage my time allocation. And then I understand, like many other things, it needs to be negotiated with my environment. I'm not going to end up exactly with my plan. But without that plan, I think it's so much more likely that you look back and you think, well, I didn't really do what I truly wanted to do. Right. It's less of a speck of sand in the maelstrom and more of like a kayaker kayaking down the rapids, if you will. Or a hiker discovering mountains of the Lake District. (laughs) Plotting forward one step at a time. (laughs) Breathing very heavily. Sarah, what do you got for recommendations? For recommendations, I actually have a couple of books that are directly tied to my Lake District vacation. I read both these books in preparation for and while I was on this trip, and I love them so much I couldn't decide between them. But they are both about the region. So the first one is called Wild Fell by Lee Schofield, and the second is called English Pastoral by James Rebanks. And I loved these books because Wild Fell is the story of a conservationist trying to be a farmer. And English Pastoral is the story of a farmer who's sort of learning to farm more like a conservationist. And I found the topic of farming in this region super interesting and the way that subsidies and macroeconomics have shaped farming in England to be super fascinating. But also the science of how it's actually had this incredibly difficult impact on the landscape and on the soil and on the fertility of the soil. And reading them sort of back to back was a super interesting way to just immerse myself in the topic and the area and to learn a lot about flora and fauna and sheep. (laughs) So I recommend them both. Fantastic. That sounds wonderful. And can I ask, you're carrying books when you're hiking? I left them in the hotel. (laughs) The heavy, thick, hardback books I left in the hotel while I was out on the fells. Very good. Very good. Felix, what do you have? I had a chance to at least start writing a case about the South African company, the Discovery Group, which you might know as a health insurance company Mm -hmm. that is built around this notion of shared value. Super interesting. And then a couple of years back, they started a bank. And so my 
cases about the bank and the extent to which shared value plays out in financial services. But the reason why I'm giving this background, I had an opportunity to visit South Africa as a result. And my recommendation is jollof rice. It's a fried rice dish that you see on almost every menu, the places I went to, it was everywhere. And what's truly fascinating is the description on the menu always sounds the same. And then depending on the country, the region, depending maybe on the mood of the chef, who knows exactly, it's really transformed in interesting ways. It's incredible variety. So if you have a chance to go to any sort of African restaurant in your neighborhood, it's probably on the menu. And it's the thing that I would order first before I would order anything else. Wow. So just to triangulate, is it a little bit more like a fried rice one might get in an Asian restaurant, or is it crispier, or is it actually still soft? It's not crispy. So it's similar to a rice that you might get in an Asian restaurant. It's typically spicier, and it feels more flavorful. And people have definite preferences of what they think they really like. So I've had experiences where I thought, oh my God, this is the best rice I have ever had in my life. And then the person I was with, I said, I'm so sorry we went to the wrong place. This rice is terrible. (laughs) And it was mostly because it was so different from how you've gotten used to eating the rice. So if you have a chance to check it out, many versions, many varieties, and definitely worth a culinary excursion. That sounds great. Yeah. What did you bring me here? So I have kind of maybe one and a half recommendations. So one (laughs) is I want to double down on a show I've mentioned before, but never really recommended. Just in passing, I mentioned Barry, which is this HBO show Mm. with Bill Hader. And it is in its final season. And it is going out with a bang, literally and figuratively and everything. I love a show that knows how to end, where things just spiral and spiral more and more out of control, as opposed to trying to coming to some kind of (laughs) tying it up nicely. So that show is just fantastic. And then my other recommendation, I've often recommended puzzles and games. And of course, during the pandemic, we saw this profusion of games. They were almost all verbal based around words, like spelling bee or yes, wordle. Yeah. Quite remarkable. Yeah, but actually numbers are fantastic. And the New York Times has a new game called Digits. Uh-huh. Digits is really, really fun. You get six numbers and then they give you a target number to hit by using some mathematical operations. Mm. It starts easy and then it gets harder and harder. You have six in a day. It's just a lovely little device. So I recommend Barry and Digits for you. Wonderful. Hmm. And this is it for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective.